So I hope that relinquishment of your devices will really support the next phase of our entering deeper into the retreat. So we're spending these first days just building together a strong container for our practice. And that container is created by our commitment to the ethical training training precepts that we took last night, to noble silence. And it's grounded in that underlying quality of generosity, of dana and chaga that I spoke of yesterday. So now I think we're ready to look at some of the more, some of the other aspects of being on retreat that really support this going inwards, this befriending ourselves more fully, and the strengthening of the wisdom and compassion that lead to transformative insight. So in some ways we can think of this whole process of being one of what's known traditionally as taking refuge. And as many of you know, taking refuge is a key term in the Buddha's teachings. And traditionally we begin a period of retreat by taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, or the teachings, and the Sangha the community of people who are following those teachings. And to us today, that might sound like a quaint concept, but perhaps to varying degrees relevant. So just to give you some context, my understanding is that in the India of the Buddha's time, there weren't centralized governments, there weren't welfare systems to help people who got sick or old or injured or were unable to work. And so apparently people took refuge in a wealthy person, a powerful person, someone who might be able to support them in difficult times. Now the Buddha was a master at taking existing ideas and concepts and systems and quietly subverting them for his own ends, namely in the service of freedom. So he borrowed this idea of taking refuge and he oriented it towards a different kind of support. So not so much support from someone out there, but support for our inner development. So by orienting to the lived example of the Buddha and then by investigating the teachings he gave that lead to freedom, and then third, by walking that path of practice in the company of like-minded people. So that's pretty much what we're doing here on this retreat. And on a very practical level, taking refuge can simply mean taking time out from our ordinary lives with all of the busyness, the complexity and the stress that many of us experience there. And we take that time out so that we can settle more fully into the sanctuary of all that, the sanctuary that this place provides. Because I understand that Temuata is a nature sanctuary, according to the website, 344 hectares of native bush. And all of that has been protected by covenant since 1987. And so those of you who've been here before, you appreciate just how much the land itself contributes to a sense of being held in safety and silence and simplicity. In fact, those are three 
of the six supports for retreat practice that I'd like to explore a bit more fully now. Because in my own retreat practice over many years, these are six particular conditions or qualities that at different times I've deliberately oriented towards to help support the deepening of my practice. By coincidence, all six of these qualities begin with S. So I hope I don't start lisping too much as I say safety, silence, solitude, simplicity, slowing down, and stillness. So the first one, safety, is in some ways the most obvious. Because implicit in this idea of going for refuge is protection from some kind of danger. But perhaps because it is obvious, it's easy to overlook. So in this context, safety means our shared commitment to non-harming. That commitment that we expressed last night through the five ethical trainings. So not to kill living beings, not to take what's not freely given not to misuse our sexual energy, not to speak falsely or harshly, and not to take intoxicants that cloud the mind. And again, in my own experience, it can be easy to take this commitment to non-harming for granted and think of it as just a formula that we start at the, recite, at the start of a retreat. But a few years ago, when I was living in the U.S., I used to spend time volunteering in a prison in Massachusetts near to the meditation center where I was living. And it was a pretty striking contrast to go every Sunday from the meditation center into the prison and to lead a meditation group there with some friends. And through that experience of spending time with those men, who were living in an environment that was, well, basically many people in the prison environment are not committed to non-harming. And just spending a few hours there every Sunday, I had a very immediate sense of the negative effect on the nervous system when we are living in an environment that that basic sense of safety is lacking. So here we have almost the opposite of that. We're fortunate to be in an environment where we all are contributing to that sense of safety. And it is co-created by each of us. So refuge is not something that we just take. It's also something that we give. So as I briefly mentioned last night, in the suttas, the discourses, the Buddha describes the five precepts as great gifts that we give to the world. And by making that offering, we receive the gift of fearlessness. We don't have to live in fear of being found out or punished. And so this principle operates in relation to all five of the precepts. But I wanted to focus just on the first one, the commitment to not killing living beings, not taking life. Because in some ways we can see the benefits of that quite clearly here in our retreat environment with some of the wild creatures that we share it with. And in my own practice, I've been fortunate to be able to spend long periods of time on retreat at various meditation centers around the world. And in all of those centers, I've, they've all been located in 
woodlands or native bush and so forth. And I have the impression that the wild creatures around there somehow sense the commitment to non-harming. And it is true that just on a practical level, like here at Temuata, this place is a sanctuary, it's protected by law. And perhaps because of that, the animals around here can feel more at ease. So, for example, last time we were here, 18 months or so ago, I know some of you were on that same retreat, and you might remember that a ruru or a moorpork came to sit in the kauri tree just in the car park there, and some of you are nodding your head, so you remember, you know, owls are normally nocturnal, but for some reason this one was just sitting on the branch and seemed to be quite happy allowed quite a few people to take illicit photos with their phones (laughs) without being startled and flying off. So I don't know about for you, but for me, being able to be with wild creatures like that, it feels like a gift, another form of generosity, and it naturally brings up warmth and kindness, sometimes even to animals that we otherwise might not have that much affection for. New Zealand's relatively benign. You know, we've got spiders, slugs, snails, maybe wetters. But uh, Australia has quite a big range of things that are not normally that attractive. But nevertheless, just spending time with them, our capacity to feel meta can expand. And certainly when I was on retreat in the U.S. at the Forest Refuge, which is the long-term retreat center for the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, it is on many hundred hectares of uh, regenerating woodland. And I was doing walking meditation there one evening in a wildflower meadow that has the beautiful Buddha overlooking it. And as I was walking, I heard a rustling in the long grass right next to my walking path. So I took a look and noticed that there was a pretty large skunk just ambling along, pretty close to me. And I stopped walking as soon as I recognized what it was, because uh, it wasn't that keen on frightening the skunk and getting sprayed with its pretty horrible smell. But after a few seconds, I realized that it didn't seem to have any concern about me being there. And so the skunk and I just did walking meditation together. (laughs) It was snuffling along in the wildflowers looking for insects, and I just slowly walked alongside it for the full length of my walking track. And it really sharpened my mindfulness. And I found also that by the time I got to the end of the track, there was a natural sense of affection, of metta, for that skunk and all the other forest creatures that were living alongside us without fear. So I have quite a few more examples, I won't share all of them now, but just wanted to give you that as one example of the gift of fearlessness that's offered and received. And it's this gift of fearlessness when we come on retreat that allows our nervous systems to begin to unwind more and more fully so that we can relax into this refuge of freedom from harm.
So a very powerful, second powerful support for this refuge that we're creating is our commitment to the fourth precept, which on retreat is the keeping of noble silence. And again, there are different levels to this silence. The first, the most obvious one, is a commitment to not communicating with each other verbally or non-verbally, and to avoid using our mobile phones. And that's so that our awareness doesn't become scattered by unnecessary mental activity. And because we're all in this together, the more still and stable each one of us can be, that supports all of us to strengthen and deepen our samadhi. So in that process, when our awareness stops getting so distracted by all our entanglements out there, we're able to more carefully and fully listen in here. And often what we start to recognize, as we were touching into this morning, are some of the self-views and the beliefs and the constructs and the concepts that we bring to our meditation practice. And often these unseen views drive us in ways that aren't helpful. So that's why I invited you this morning to explore in the more spacious practice period what kind of practices you did, grounded in generosity as a support for wise effort. And as many of you named, you started to see some of those underlying motivations that we do often bring to our practice. So based on my own experience, and again with students, many of us have a lot of hidden beliefs and assumptions about what we think is supposed to be happening in our meditation and what we should be achieving and what we definitely should not be experiencing. And when these beliefs aren't seen, they keep us constantly micromanaging our practice, trying to make our experience be a bit more like this and a bit less like that and fit more neatly into the model of what good meditation looks like. But as I think many of you know, all of that effort is often exhausting and not so useful because, in fact, the deepest insights arise from letting go and learning how to be with experience exactly as it is rather than how we'd like it to be. So as we get more skilled at listening to our inner mind states and allowing the unnecessary monologues to fade away, we have a chance to discover an even deeper level of silence. So according to one of my teachers, Gil Fransdell, he describes what Buddhism calls noble silence, is a beautiful state of mind that comes when discursive thinking has stopped. Discursive thinking refers to thought that proceeds like an inner discourse in our own minds. It may be imagining conversations with others, remembering past conversations, or talking to ourselves. It might involve abstract, analytical thinking about what's happening in the present moment. But as discursive thinking quietens down, the mind becomes more peaceful. And as agitation decreases, desire and aversion lessen. 
And when this inner stilling is accompanied by confidence, purity and equanimity, then the mind is said to experience the fullness of noble silence. So whether or not we personally have experienced this fullness of noble silence yet, we can still practice orienting towards it through surrendering to the outer silence that's available here. So as we tune in to the benefits of the silence, that attunement highlights the listening aspect of mindfulness practice. So one way I sometimes think of sati as as a process of listening, not just with our ears, but with all of our senses, to every aspect of our experience. We might start with our actual experience of hearing, and then we extend that quality of receptivity to everything else. So even here on the literal level of listening at Temuata, we can hear what's normally drowned out by the clamor of the world. So we might hear the call of the tui in the morning and the ruru, the owls calling at night with exquisite clarity. And maybe some of you here have heard kiwi because I understand that the kiwi population here is thriving because of Temuata's commitment to eradicate predators. So we can listen to all the different birds around us and to the wind rustling in the trees the gentle gurgling of the streams and the rain showers like we had this morning so we start with literally listening with the ears and attuning into this powerful natural environment that's all around us the land the native bush all the creatures who share it with us And as we embody this approach to mindfulness, we also attune to our own being. So we listen with that same refined sensitivity to our own bodies and hearts and minds so that we can get to know and befriend ourselves with that same kindness and care and compassion. So this is one of the benefits of solitude the third of these six supports that I want to focus on tonight. And yet for some people, perhaps those who are relatively new to retreat practice, the lack of social contact here, at times that solitude might shade over into loneliness. And that's true in my own practice too, especially on longer retreats. There are times when we're exploring the difference between loneliness and solitude. And although superficially they might seem the same, loneliness is usually a somewhat painful state. It often brings other afflictive emotions with it, like sadness or aversion or anxiety or wanting and longing. Whereas with solitude, there's a sense of acceptance, completeness, contentment. So we can explore for ourselves that difference, but also want to take care not to judge any loneliness that might come up, but also not to assume that the experience of being alone is going to automatically bring up loneliness 
And for some people at first this might seem counterintuitive because so much of our pleasure in the world is socially based. And it's true, we are relational beings and we're capable of offering each other great happiness through our loving connections. But if we don't bring wisdom to this relational aspect of our lives, sometimes we find ourselves investing a lot of emotional energy in trying to get people out there to make us happy. And inevitably, with that project, there are times when we don't succeed. There will be times when other people let us down. And that can reinforce those patterns of loneliness and despair, desperation, even self-hatred. So the gift of solitude is that it helps us to befriend ourselves first. Because when we can get to know ourselves more and more fully, when we can offer deep kindness and compassion to ourselves, we're in a much better position to be able to offer and receive it from others too. So this is part of the point of spending time in solitude, that we get to strengthen a healthy self-knowledge, self-reliance, completeness. So there's a short haiku poem from the Zen tradition that captures this sense of wholeness very beautifully. It's by a female poet, Izumi Shikabu, who apparently lived in the 10th century. Some of you probably know it. She says, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Very simple. Watching the moon at midnight, <coughs> solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So in solitude we have that opportunity to know ourselves completely including those parts that are lonely at times and all the other parts that perhaps we don't like and try to disconnect from. So here on retreat we have an opportunity to befriend those parts too by resting in the simplicity and the solitude of our own company instead of perhaps our more normal habit of reaching for the distraction of our devices or a book or a journaling project or any of those other strategies that we normally use to just distance ourselves from what's difficult. So as an antidote to that complexifying and those habitual strategies, we have the simplicity as the fourth support. So in the poem that I just read, it's the simplicity of the words that gives them their power. There's nothing extra there, nothing unnecessary. And that simplicity connects us very directly to the essence of what the poet is expressing. And again, by contrast, most of us live lives that are pretty far away from simplicity. We tend to burden ourselves with all kinds of stuff and all kinds of activities and all kinds of busyness and then wonder why we feel constantly stressed and anxious and agitated. 
But in the Buddha's teachings, he pointed over and over to what he referred to as the bliss of renunciation. Anybody experience that? Not so common in English to hear bliss and renunciation (laughs) put together. Because in English, the word renunciation has some pretty seriously unpleasant connotations. But if we think of renunciation as simplicity, it might start to make more sense. When we allow ourselves to surrender into the simplicity of being on retreat, we often find a surprisingly profound level of ease, happiness, freedom. And from that, we get an understanding that actually having all of our sense pleasures satisfied all the time is not the only way to happiness. And again, this is a very different message from dominant mainstream society, which wants us to believe that being happy comes from fulfilling our every sense desire and staying as comfortable as possible and by protecting ourselves from even the slightest trace of unpleasant experience. So this is not about masochism. It's true that on one level we want to be comfortable, and some degree of comfort is helpful for our lives and for our Dharma practice. But learning how much comfort is necessary is an aspect of wisdom. And again, here on retreat, we have an opportunity to look at our relationship to comfort and to discomfort and to experiment with the simplicity of renunciation. And just to name, perhaps because of uh, mainstream society, the underlying Christian heritage, we tend to think of renunciation as being about giving up things. So we hear about people giving up coffee or chocolate or alcohol but in Buddhism there's a much deeper level of renunciation and it's not so much about relinquishing things as about relinquishing habits and attitudes and views and beliefs that keep us stuck in the same old same old way of being so the American teacher Pema Chodron who as many of you know is a nun in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition She describes this aspect of renunciation pretty clearly in her book, The Places That Scare You. She says, Renunciation does not have to be regarded as negative. I was taught that it has to do with letting go of holding back. What one is renouncing is closing down and shutting off from life. You could say that renunciation is the same thing as opening to the teachings of the present moment. Renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia for wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world is insane. Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is and how vast our potential for experiencing life is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. When we sit in meditation, we feel our breath as it goes out. And we have some sense of willingness just to be open to the present moment. Then our minds wander off into all kinds of stories and fabrications and manufactured realities. And we say to ourselves, it's just thinking. 
We say that with a lot of gentleness and a lot of precision. Every time we're willing to let the storyline go, and every time we're willing to let go of the end of the outbreak, that is fundamental renunciation. Learning how to let go of holding on and holding back. So renunciation or relinquishment or voluntary simplicity has a close connection to the fifth aspect of being on retreat, slowing down. And as a general principle here, the slower you go, the more you'll know. So just like driving a car, if we're zooming along at 90, we're going to miss a lot of detail. If we slow down to 30 or even 15, whole new dimensions of experience start to open up to us. And again, at first, this slowing down can be a challenging practice for some people, one that might bring up resistance. We tend to live in our heads, in our intellects, and increasingly in a digital world where everything moves ultra-fast. So it's not surprising that when we come on retreat, we find ourselves zooming around and we're often caught in impatience and restlessness due to the slower pace of life here. But again, as our nervous systems start to adjust to this different way of being, we start to experience very directly how bodily calm supports mental calm and vice versa. And I've noticed working with students on longer retreats that those who aren't able to slow down are often the ones who aren't able to access deeper samadhi because there's often an unseen resistance or a holding on to being someone, to maintaining some kind of identity or perhaps of being special or different. And that gets in the way of that natural release into more ease and peace. So on retreat, we can notice how fast we're moving, and it can be a useful feedback mechanism. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to creep around at a snail's pace the whole time, but just when you are rushing, when you catch yourself leaning forward, you might in that moment experiment with physically stopping, just for a moment or two to break that forward momentum. And in the pause, just check what is going on. Notice what your experience is and how you're relating to it. And often you'll find that there's some kind of wanting or not wanting that's propelling the rushing. And so can we invite that tension to relax and release? And sometimes even when we're sitting still, we might notice a subtle energetic leaning forward into our next experience, waiting for the next breath or waiting for something more interesting to happen. And even that anticipation, that push to know what's next, 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 even that can be softened as we start to tune into the natural rhythms around us of sunrise and sunset, and night and day, and sun and rain, 
we start to realize that our practice also has its own natural, organic rhythms of ebb and flow. And so the more we can learn to trust that everything, including our own practice, is following these natural laws, natural cycles of development, then we can begin to let go of pushing and rest in the understanding that there is nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to be. So there's no one to be, but there is simply being, without anyone being it. So now we come to the sixth support, which is stillness. So safety, silence, solitude, simplicity, slowing down, all of these flow naturally into stillness. We put down the burden of constant doing, 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 even doing the practice. And as we get used to that stillness, by contrast, the doing can feel quite painful. And then we very naturally want to let go on deeper and deeper levels. So the image of the Buddha is representing that profound form of stillness. And often Buddhas are sitting, touching the ground, connecting with the stability of the earth. And Buddhas have that very slight serene smile, which suggests the quiet enjoyment that arises naturally from stillness. Now for some people, that deep happiness of stillness, at this point it might be hard to imagine. But all of the training that we're doing on these retreats is leading in this direction. Even so, at first, the stillness and the spaciousness that we experience on retreat, in the beginning it can be something of an acquired taste because it is so different from our ordinary, everyday lives. And this is where I discover the printer has not printed all of the pages. So that's very helpful. But seeing as I'm speaking of stillness, I'll just sit with that and see if I can remember where that was going to go. Just seeing if you can cast your mind back to yesterday evening. And I was talking about these different qualities that really support our taking refuge and more fully taking advantage of what's offered here on retreat. And I got to the point of describing stillness and how that Stillness, the profound stillness that we can experience here on retreat is very different from our usual experience of everyday life where we're all tangled up with things out there and we pay almost no attention to what's going on in here, in our hearts and minds. And so when we first start doing that, when we first really start connecting more fully with our inner experience, in the stillness and silence. Sometimes it can be challenging. So I'd like to come back to Pema Chodron again because she does describe some of these more challenging aspects of meditation so brilliantly. 
She says, when we meditate, we're creating a situation in, in which there's a lot of space. That sounds good, but actually it can be unnerving. Because when there's a lot of space, you can see very clearly you've removed your veils, your shields, your armor, your dark glasses, your earplugs, your layers of mittens, your heavy boots, and finally you're standing, touching the earth, feeling the sun on your body, feeling its brightness, hearing all the noises without adding anything to dull the sound. You take off your nose plug and maybe you're going to smell lovely fresh air or maybe you're in the middle of a garbage dump. Since meditation has this quality of bringing you very close to yourself and your experience, you tend to come up against your edge faster. It's not an edge that wasn't there before, but because things are so simplified and clear, you see it, and you see it vividly. Whenever you realize that you have met your edge, rather than think, I've made a mistake, you can acknowledge the present moment and its teaching. You can hear the message, which is simply that in this moment you're saying no. The instruction then is to soften, to connect with your heart, and engender a basic attitude of generosity and compassion toward yourself. So here again we have the support of generosity, of the dana and chaga that we started the retreat with, because it helps to soften our resistance. And later in the retreat we'll also be exploring compassion and self-compassion too. So stillness is about releasing the pressure of our constant busyness and then meeting whatever gets revealed in that spaciousness with kindness, care, compassion. And that's exactly the process that we're entering into here on this retreat. We're gradually allowing our frazzled nervous systems and our bruised hearts and our pressured minds to acclimate to the safety, the silence, the solitude, the simplicity, the slowing down and the stillness. So a few years ago I read somewhere that in the Tibetan tradition the word that's used for meditation literally translates as getting used to it. <laughs> and I like that idea of getting used to it. And I don't know what it exactly means in the Tibetan practice, but in my own practice I found it very helpful to think of meditation as getting used to whatever the experience is, and particularly when we are in those phases of new and unfamiliar territory of some kind, when we might be feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, or, or at an edge, as Pema Chodron says. And at those times, I try to simply remember, okay, just getting used to it. So I want to encourage all of us, including me, to make the most of this precious opportunity to be here on retreat. The more that we can settle into the refuge that's offered here, 
the stronger our inner qualities become. And it's these resources of wisdom and compassion that we can take with us when we eventually leave here as an offering to the world that so desperately needs more wisdom and compassion. So this is the true purpose of taking refuge and of going on retreat. And I want to highlight that because words such as refuge, retreat, they can have connotations of withdrawing, even running away or escaping. But coming here is not about avoiding the challenges of life. We can't build ourselves a cozy nest and just stay here forever. At some point we're going to have to leave. So spending time on retreat, being here at Tanwata, is not a form of escapism. It has a much higher purpose. To free ourselves from afflictive mind states and in their place cultivate skillful mind states so that we can live with more and more ease, peace, freedom for the benefit not only of ourselves but all beings. So true refuge is the inner refuge that we take with us out into the world. And so I'd like to finish just with one last quote, this time from the Buddha, about what is meant by true refuge. And it comes from the Dhammapada, a collection of short verses that some of you are familiar with. It says, They go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees and shrines, people who are threatened with danger. But that's not the secure refuge. That's not the highest refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when, having gone for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, you see with right discernment the four noble truths. Stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the Noble Eightfold Path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refuge. That, the highest refuge. That is the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. So that's what we're doing here. Thank you for your attention there.